Faith Memorial Church was founded in 1945 as Cleveland Evangelistic Center. A lot has changed since then, but one thing hasn't. Faith Memorial Church's passion for Christ and compassion for the people of our community. If you have your Bibles, I want you to grab Ephesians chapter 4. That's where we're going to be at today. Um, but for a moment, I want to start off in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, and then I'll jump over to Ephesians 4. Lord, bless this message this morning. So, we have been doing a series on the signs of a healthy church. And look at that. They're ahead of the game this morning. I already got the symbol up and everything. Whoop, whoop. But when we started this series, we kind of started a little bit different. We wanted to kind of go slow and make sure that we thought through every single thing. And so each week, God has kind of just layered on a new dimension. And when I started this off, I said, we're going to go on an adventure together because I don't really know how this is going to turn out. And each week that has proved more and more true. It's actually kind of becoming a trademark of my relationship with the Lord or how he communicates through me is each week I think I've got something and he decides to just change it and do something else. So um, maybe I'm not as good at preparing on the front end as I'd like to believe. And he's like, yeah, that was a good effort. That was cute. But we're going to scratch that and do something a little bit better. Um, and so for that, you guys should thank God. <laughs> um, when we started this out, you know, just real quick, um, I want to engage in a little bit of intentional redundancy or repetition. Um, you know, Peter says, you know, I want to put you in remembrance of this, even though you already know it, I still think it's necessary to remind you of it again, because I want you to be able to understand the things of God. And so that's kind of what I'm doing is, you know, a, an informed church is a happy church. And practice may not make perfect, but it does make permanent. And that's what I want is I want what we talk about in this series to be permanent so that we ever have an idea of what we are pressing towards and what we are striving towards. Amen. So we started it out. We defined what it was to be a church, what it was to be a healthy church. We even went so far as to uh, define what a sign was. And we walked away from that knowing that a church is a diverse yet unified assembly of believers that have surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And then the next week I was ready to go. I had the, the sermon planned and God just ruined everything, quote unquote, and decided that we needed to lay a foundation in the fear of the Lord. And so we began to just discuss that without God's presence, it's all meaningless and it's all worthless anyway. Without God showing up, church sucks. And it does suck a lot of the times because we have these assemblies and we kind of program God right out of the equation. And then we just have a meeting and we walk away feeling morally better, but spiritually empty. And so God showed me that the foundation, or showed us rather, that the foundation of a healthy church is the fear of the Lord, which is Jesus Christ. And then we cast kind of this tent 
over the house, you know, what the roof is, the vision, the vision of this church specifically is to be a church that says, hello, Cleveland, meet Jesus, not meet a program, not meet a service, meet Jesus, that Jesus is the vision of the church. And any other vision is a wasted vision. Any other vision is is guilty of, I don't know, cataracts or blindness or short sightedness because it's not really grasping what New Testament Christianity is all about. It's about Jesus. That's our vision, Jesus. And introducing Jesus to everyone and everything that we come into contact with. And then I have a little story I want to share with you guys. A little story. John, this was at Publix. Because all great things happen at Publix, right? <laughs> I went to Publix because I needed or faith rather, told me that I needed uh, some something, I don't even remember what it was now, but something for breakfast. I needed some, to get a specific ingredient for breakfast. I don't remember what it was. But I go through the line, and I'm, I'm, in, I'm in Publix, and, you know, I just feel the Holy Spirit as I'm walking through Publix. Odd place to feel the Holy Ghost, but I just start praying and praising God, lift my hands, and people think I'm a weirdo, and that's okay, because if I, everybody else classifies what's normal, I'd rather be weird. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm in public praising the Lord and I get up to the line and this lady is talking to um, the gentleman that's bagging groceries. I don't rem- know what they call him anymore, bag boy, but he wasn't a boy. So anyway, a guy bagging groceries and <laughs> and she's telling him this story about how bad her neighbor's cats annoy her. My neighbor lets her cats run all over the place and they get in my yard and I keep warning her that one of these days my dog's going to get a hold of one of these cats and there's not going to be anything left. And the cat keeps getting up on my porch and my dogs are inside and they just bark, bark, bark. And she says this, she says, and it annoys the ever-loving pee out of me. She doesn't say the word pee, but she says it annoys the ever-loving pee out of me. And I am just standing there having my praise Jesus moment. And I'm just like, wait a second, wait, 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 pause. It annoys the ever-loving pee out of you? Yeah. How can pee be ever-loving? We don't think about the things that we say, do we? We just say it out like word vomit. We don't consider what we say. But I did say, how, does, how in the world can pee be ever-loving? And she just stares at me, kind of like you guys are staring at me right now. <laughs> just, What? You know, it's just a figure of speech. You know. And I just said, let me tell you something. There is only one thing that can be ever loving, and his name is Jesus. And then on went the gospel presentation. And after that, I decided to do a video and share it and say, do not tell me that you cannot use anything to share the gospel, because this takes a record. I don't know where the records are held, but this one has a record and a merit badge in heaven that I'm going to get on my little Boy Scout uniform in heaven saying, I use P to share the gospel, okay? (laughs) Oh, you're welcome for that. You're welcome. Who says Mary Hart's not like a medicine? Frank didn't know. He was just setting me up. (laughs) Yeah, you got to have fun in church. You got to have fun in church. But... That's the vision. 
not to be stuffy and segregated and separated so far that we forget that we're a part of Cleveland and the society that in, of the world in which we live, but to go into that society and just blast Jesus everywhere we go. And it doesn't mean putting a sticker that says J-E-S-U-S on our forehead and then being jerks to everybody. It means actually exemplifying the body and the arms and feet of Jesus. Just going into the world and looking like Jesus. And Jesus was radically different than the religious scene at that time. And I think that if we want to carry out this vision, we're going to have to be radically different than the religious scene in our time. Because right now you've got two extremes. You've got the haughty, toddy, holier-than-thou religious people that are so wrapped up in legalism that they're in rebellion from God and don't know it. And then you've got the people over here that are so far in antinomianism, which basically just means character doesn't matter because Jesus paid it all. You can do whatever you want and live in sin. And I've heard people say, you can live like hell and still go to heaven. And I'm like, no, you can't. You can live like hell and that's where you're going to (laughs) go. But there's two extremes. We slap Jesus bumper stickers over here and do whatever we want, or we paint Jesus on our cathedrals, and either way we don't look or sound anything like him. And I want to be in the middle. I want to be that radical different that pursues the vision of Jesus and shares him with everybody and looks and sounds completely different. That's the vision of this church. And that's the roof over which our proverbial house is built. And then last week, of course, we began to get into a wonderful conversation about the truth and that the first sign, because we went through all that other stuff and didn't even get to the first sign of a healthy church. That's all precursors or prerequisites to being a church. Then you can get into the signs of whether or not that church is healthy. And the first sign of a healthy church is devotion to the Word of God. And we went through all of that, and we talked about how devotion to the Word of God isn't just reading it or learning it. It isn't even just doing or uh, living out some of the things in it, but it's learning it, living it, and loving it. And loving it is the most important because then the Word of God will develop a spirit and a culture of humility in you and pervade everything that you do. Amen? And that brings us to today, the second sign of a healthy church. For those of you that are taking notes, the second sign of a healthy church is intentional fellowship. Intentional fellowship. Now, here is where God changing what I had planned is going to come in full force. Because when I approached this, I had a general idea of what each message would look like. I didn't plan on going into love and humility last week, but that's what God said do. And this week, when I thought about intentional fellowship... I'm going to be honest with you. I thought about teaching on like missional communities or small groups or, you know, even from Acts 2, 42 through 47, it says, you know, they broke bread together in one another's homes and they were in one another's homes daily. And there was this pervasive fellowship and intimacy with one another that wasn't just Wednesdays or Sundays or when they were in the temple or the synagogue. It was every single day they were just doing life together to coin Um, to borrow Dietrich Bonhoeffer's phrase. They were just doing life together. And a lot of times when we want to teach on fellowship, that's what we do, is we kind of like start with the end goal and teach about what the end goal looks like and then just say, hey, do this. But one thing that I've found in my limited experience is that telling people what they should do and what the final product looks like and then saying, hey, do this, doesn't really work. What it does is it creates fake community. 
It creates fake community where people are meeting together in one another's homes and they really can't stand each other, but they're glaring at each other through gritted teeth over coffee and Bible study. And they're sick and tired of being there. And an hour or two before they go, they're like, oh, I don't want to go tonight. Are you sick? Take your temperature. (laughs) Come on. Like, can you make yourself throw up or something so I can send this text? (laughs) Step outside so I can tell them you're not at home. (laughs) Come on. Come on. Okay. Y'all must be holier than I am because these thoughts have run through my mind in the past. Like, I really just do not want to go, and I'm the one that's supposed to lead it. <laughs> but they do. And you're like, I'm, gonna, I'm going to institutionalize or structuralize these small groups, and you're going to sign up for a small group and randomly be thrown together for six months before you sign up for a new one. And by the end of the six months, we're going to have fellowship. It's like, no, you're not. You're going to be sick and tired of each other by the end of six months. Because guess what? I can show you, I could go walk up to an apple tree and hold a picture of an orange and say, hey, make this. And I can stand there all day long and shout and preach and teach on the chemical and structural composition of an orange. And guess what that apple tree is still going to do? Produce apples. And an orange tree is going to produce oranges no matter how many pictures of apples I tape on it. Because it's perfectly designed to produce exactly what it's producing. And look, I can go print off a pretty picture from Unsplash or Shutterfly or whatever these other image sites are of of people sitting and fake smiling at each other over a cup of coffee and say, hey, this is our fellowship. Like, we believe in fellowship here. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. Look, If you wanted to make ice cream, if you wanted to make ice cream, and I walked up to you and said, I'm so glad you want to make ice cream. My favorite flavor is, wait, yesterday when I was in Pigeon Forge, because we've had this crazy past couple days, when I was in Pigeon Forge, we had this coffee ice cream from Old Mill Creamery, and that is the best ice cream I've ever put in my life, bar none, or ever put in my mouth, bar none. That ice cream was fantastic. Old Mill Creamery, write that down. It, trust me, it's worth the hour and 45-minute drive for that ice cream. It was amazing, absolutely amazing. And I could tell you how good it was. I could tell you what it tasted like. That ain't going to help you make ice cream. I could tell you, what my, I, I could tell you, hey, Rocky Road is a good flavor of ice cream. Neapolitan is a mixture of chocolate and strawberry and vanilla. Still ain't going to help you make ice cream. I could tell you the chemical composition of ice cream. Still ain't going to help you. I could tell you the history and that ice cream was invented by a guy named Antonio Latoni, maybe? I I don't know. I looked that up before this because I was like, hey, I want to know that. (laughs) But I could tell you the history of ice cream in America. Still isn't going to help you make ice cream. What you're going to need is you're going to need somebody to walk up with the appropriate equipment and the ingredients and the instructions to help you make ice cream. It's what you have to have. Someone show you how to do it or tell you how to do it and to give you the stuff necessary to do it. And likewise, we've been talking about, you know, this construction idea of a house. The The church is the house of God and we've been building our metaphorical house. Look, how would it be if a contractor walked up to the job site and had a picture of the living room 
because intimate fellowship, you know, that's kind of like the living room where you get together, you sit around a fire, you get close to one another. But he has a picture of the living room. He walks up and he shows the workers on site. And he says, hey, look, this is from uh, Hearth and Home or from the Magnolia Journal. I don't know what's something else Joanna Gaines does because hers is the best. But, you know, like this is a picture of a pretty living room. I want you to make this. But there's no blueprints. There's no measurements. There's no instructions. They don't tell them where it goes in the house, how to build it. You'd have a bunch of people that have the right idea, but all having different opinions of how to get there. And that's what we've done in the church is we say, hey, fellowship is this. Great, you've shown me the end goal. How do I get there? And so I began to just ask the question, like, God, how do we get there? How do we get there? And the Lord brought me to an interesting passage, Ephesians 4. And basically what I began to think, and this may not be the case for everybody, but the, for me and the way my mind works, I began to realize if we want to change the fruit, we have to deal with the root. If we want to change the product that the system produces, we can't just say, okay, we're going to retry the exact same recipe again. Because that doesn't work. We've been trying to bake a metaphorical cake for years, retrying the same recipe over and over and over and over again, and hoping that we get a different result. How about we do like an overhaul of the system and the structure and see if that doesn't help us get a different result. So that's what this is. This is about intentional fellowship, but it's going to be a whole different presentation than what you've probably heard in the past, and definitely different than what I have done when I've preached on this in the past. And I have to say, I repent of all the times where I've just shown somebody a finished product and haven't told them how to get there. Because we get so caught up in I want to preach the pretty message that sounds good, that we can shout over, that we can get excited about, that doesn't help anyone. So let's get, let's get pastoral and let's get practical. Ephesians 4.1, we're going to read down to verse 16. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given just as Christ has apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. The King James sounds so much better there. He led captivity captive. Anyway, what does he ascended mean that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who has ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love 
as each part does its work. Amen. Amen. I love this passage of Scripture. Partly because the fivefold ministry is listed out, and anyone that talks about ministry just kind of readily goes to Ephesians 4.11. But I love it because Paul does something interesting in this passage. You'll notice that he occasionally is talking about the individual and then is occasionally talking about the church or the corporate body. And one thing that we are guilty of, me, myself, and I included, are guilty of, is when we talk about the individual, we fail to realize that the individual is nothing more than a piece of a larger whole. You are a temple, but really you are a piece or a stone or a building block and part of the temple, which is the church, the house of God. And when we talk about the corporate church or the body, we fail to realize that it's made up of a collective group of individuals. And so we kind of like almost divorce the two. And we say, okay, this scripture is about individuals and this scripture is about the corporate body. And really and truthfully, no scripture is about one or the other. They're all about both. And they all, all scripture has different implications for the individual and for the corporate body. But you can't have a corporate church unless you have a bunch of individual Christians or individual believers. And you can't have a bunch of individual believers without having a corporate church. Both are necessary. And if you talk about one, you're automatically talking about the other. And so what Paul begins to do masterfully is he starts with himself. I've always thought it weird when I get to Ephesians 4.1, he kind of reintroduces himself. Every one of his letters starts off similar to I, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, not by the will of man or by the will of a man, but by Jesus Christ, the Lord and God, the Father who raised him from the dead. Like that's the beginning of Galatians. He always starts off this introduction of himself by saying who or what he is. And it's almost like he reintroduces a salutation at the beginning of Ephesians 4. He says, I, a prisoner of the Lord. And I've always just kind of like read over that and said, oh, yeah, that's that's neat. Okay, let's keep going. But I began to realize he introduces that. And then in a few verses, he introduces captivity again. And what I began to realize that he was doing was he was identifying himself with every other individual and then tying them all together, himself included, into a corporate one. He says, I'm a prisoner of God. I used to be a prisoner of sin. I used to be a prisoner of religion. I used to be a prisoner of tradition, but now I'm a prisoner of God. See, the reason I love the King James or even the New American Standard, I think it says he led captive a host of captives or something like that. The reason I love that language is because it doesn't just say, oh, he freed the captives. No, it says he freed the captives, but he freed them from one type of captivity and introduced them to another type of captivity. See, Jesus doesn't just free us. He frees us and his mercy and his goodness are so good and so great and so beautiful that it reintroduces us into a whole new type of captivity. Now, I'm going to get myself in trouble here. So I'm just I'm just putting that disclaimer out. My wife will forgive me. I promise. I promise she has to. The Bible tells her that she does. <laughs> the ca- type of captivity that Jesus introduces us to is similar to marriage. And yes, I just equated marriage and captivity. <laughs> Told you I was going to get in trouble. And I'm not saying like, oh, the old ball and chain like I'm not I'm not doing that. I'm showing marriage as a type of captivity because 
when you're in love with someone, it dictates your behavior. Listen, you talk to me, and I automatically filter that conversation through what my wife would think of it. You ask me to go somewhere, I filter the appointment through or the engagement through what my wife would do or what my wife needs from me or what that would pressure would that put on my wife. Not because like she would say, no, you can't do that or anything like that. No, our house is set up according to the biblical mandate, but it's because I love and respect her enough to know that I don't want to do anything that would make her miserable. But it's not just about spousal relationships. It's about if you have kids, you don't do things that are going to be detrimental to your kids. If you love them, the love that you have for them has a direct correlation to the decisions and the actions that you make and do. And so when Jesus leads us captive, it's not he doesn't slap handcuffs on us. It's that when we see him for who he is, as beautiful and as holy and as righteous and as good and as merciful and as loving as he is, if we really see him as he is, that love or that sight will captivate us. It will fascinate us. And we will begin to, because of our affection for him, be led captive by his beauty and his holiness. And so then we will begin to dictate our actions based on a new type of captivity, a voluntary captivity. And so Paul introduces himself as a captive. It's not that he's a slave. It's not that he's forced. It's not bondage. It's a willful, voluntary captivity because he wants to do things pleasing to the one that has saved him and that has rescued him. And so when he does this, he starts as the individual because you weren't saved corporately. You weren't freed corporately. You were alone when God delivered you. And if you haven't been delivered, then trust me, that deliverance will be alone. If you're truly going to be delivered, you have to encounter Jesus individually. You can't go on your grandmama's faith. You can't go on your mama's faith. You can't go on your wife's faith or your husband's faith. You have to have an individual encounter with Jesus. It's individual. But as we are individually taken captive, we begin to realize that there's only one captivity to be taken into, and that's the corporate body of Christ. We are all called unto one body. And so Paul is starting individually, and he's tying it together corporately. And what he's doing is he's showing that God established the unity. God establishes the fellowship. He doesn't say, hey, go and create fellowship or go and create unity he says endeavor to maintain it endeavor to keep the unity they're not peace makers they're peace keepers you're keeping the unity that god has established and when just so, so that you know that i'm not in violation of scripture when jesus talks about peacemakers and the beatitudes he's talking about introducing peace into situations that god has not introduced peace into yet and you being a vessel of introducing peace but when you're talking about the body of christ you don't introduce the peace you just maintain and keep the peace that god has created and established just need a disclaimer that you know that i am not violating one portion of scripture in favor of another they all work together harmoniously 
So we're keeping the peace that God has maintained and established. And even when he says this, he says, walk worthy of the calling that you have. The calling of God on your life, because everybody has one. Walk worthy of that calling. He then begins to list out attributes. And he says, be completely humble. Be completely humble. I don't know about you guys, and I'm not saying like I struggle with arrogance or pride or anything like that, but when somebody says be completely anything, that's terrifying to me. Be completely and entirely humble. And humility is not just thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. It's moving away from self-centeredness. And guess what? If you beat yourself up and tear yourself down 24-7, you may not realize it, but that's just another form of self-centeredness. Humility is getting away from being self-centered and moving into being Christ-centered. And he's saying be completely humble. Be completely gentle. Be completely patient. Be completely, completely bear with one another in love. Notice that they're all relational attributes. You can't be humble unless there's people to compare yourself with. You can't be patient unless people try your nerves. <laughs> I mean, Unless there's a couple EGRs around, extra grace required people, unless there's a couple of them around, you can't be long-suffering because you ain't suffering long. Get somebody that just happens to grind your gears and just sit around them for a little while. Then you'll know if you're patient or not. (laughs) A lot of us like to think, I'm doing pretty good. You know, I'm an 8 out of 10 on the scale of holiness. Yeah, you've sat in your prayer closet all day long and haven't lived life at all. Of course, anybody can be a 10 out of 10 on holiness sitting in a closet. Get around some people that are difficult and then tell me where your holiness level is at. Better yet, put your son or daughter in baseball or sports and deal with other kids' parents and see how holy you are. Good Lord. (laughs) Talk about something testing your sanctification. That'll push you right there. Oh, goodness. I need to back up. (laughs) I need to move on somewhere else. Somewhere else. But all of those attributes are relational, showing how you should behave one toward another. And then he re-individual, corporate. Individual, corporate. And then he reintroduces the oneness by saying, hey, there's only one faith, one baptism, one spirit, one Lord, one God over all and above all and in all there's only one if there's one god then there's one church if there's one faith then there's one church. if there's one spirit then there's one church one baptism one church doesn't matter how you slice it if there's only one god then there's only one church i don't care what sign we have on the door if you're a true believer and you're truly submitted to the lordship of jesus christ it don't matter what the sign is on the door there's only one church only one we've kind of gotten obsessed with dividing from ourselves and getting mad and separating over every little thing and the truth is there's only one there's only one i would love to see kind of the script flipped upside down and instead of there being more fracturing of the body of christ if somehow they would be more unifying some of those fractures begin to disappear and you know what since the re-outpouring of pentecost at the beginning of the 20th century there has been a lot of that the spirit moving and charismatic and Pentecostalism moving through different expressions of the body of Christ, there has been a reunifying work going on in the body, and I'd love to see it have its full effect, but I digress. So he is showing us that it's one body. 
one body. And then he ties it and begins to talk about giftings. So after he gets back to unity, he begins to break it down individually again and talks about Christ. When he led captivity captive, he gave gifts to men. Now he gave gifts in two packages. He gave gifts to the individuals and he gave gifts to the corporate body. And guess what? The gifts that he gave to the corporate body are the gifts that he gave to the individual. The gifts that he gave to the individual is meant for the corporate body. You, every single person in this room, has a gifting from God, a calling on your life, a divine purpose, a destiny from God. And guess what? If you don't walk in it, you are stealing from the body of Christ because that gift isn't yours. If you do not step into your calling, you are stealing from God and the church. That's what it says. The gifts are for the body of Christ. You don't walk in them, you're committing theft. I mean, if you had money and I walked up and took $20 out of your wallet and said, hey, I'm just going to hang on to this for a little while, I don't think many of you would be like, that's all right. (laughs) I mean, maybe 20, 100, 200, 300. There's eventually a point where you're going to be like, "Eh, you know, it's no longer as okay as it was before. Like, I don't care how generous you are. Everybody has a limit. <laughs> Everybody has a has a fine line where it's like, okay, we're moving from generosity into what the heck are you doing? <laughs> if I took something of yours without asking, without permission, and held on to it for an indetermined, indefinite period of time, there is no other way to describe that other than saying that I have stolen something from you. And likewise, if you have a gift that belongs to the body of Christ and you are holding on to it for an indefinite, indetermined amount of time and not giving that to the body that it belongs to, you are committing theft. And since God spoke in our congregation earlier and said some of you haven't forgiven yourself, let me just tell you, you, your opinion of disqualifying yourself because you don't think that you're good enough is not an excuse for committing theft. I'm going to take $500 from you, but it's because I really think poorly of myself. I'm going to go rob a a bank at gunpoint because I really don't think that my bank account is all that fantastic. You can't use your own regrets or shortcomings or failures or opinions, whether they're valid or invalid, to authorize you to steal from the church. So I don't care if you have disqualified yourself because you haven't been able to forgive yourself or not. That is not an excuse to steal from the body of Christ. It's not. It's sad and my heart breaks because people don't understand how to let God love them and how to walk and operate according to his forgiveness, but it still doesn't enable you or authorize you to steal from his church. Let's move on. Oh, and I forgot to say this. I forgot to say this. The gifts that he starts listing is the five-fold ministry, the leadership of the church, and so I just want you to understand that I am a gift you (laughs) i had to i had to i almost regret saying it but not enough to have not said it (laughs) but seriously that he's showing that the gifts he gives to individuals is for the church he doesn't call it's not like hey the five of you make an apostle 
the ten of you make a pastor. That's not what he does. He says, I'm calling you individually to be a, an apostle or to be a prophet or to be an evangelist or to be a pastor or to be a teacher. I'm calling you individually so that you can give your gift to the corporate body of Christ. Look, we beat up on the leadership like you're a pastor and you're called the pastor, but you're running from your calling. And it's like the same is true of every other single person in the church. Just because you may not be called to stand behind a pulpit and preach the gospel does not mean you're not called to serve in the body of Christ. Find out what it is. Ask God. I will tell you how to figure it out real quick. Ask God what breaks your heart, what burdens your heart. Think about it. Meditate. Get alone with God and say, what, what actually frustrates me? It can be something that makes you mad. It can be something that makes you sad. It can be something that just puts you in depression if you think about it for too long. What breaks your heart? What is your burden? What is people saying to you or about you, commending you on or attacking you for? And what do you feel God is speaking to you? And the convergence of those three usually gives you a pretty idea, good idea of what your calling is. Anyway. Anyway. So all of this goes down to the gift, the reason that he gives the leadership in the church. He gives the leadership in the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers for one reason. One reason. To equip the saints so that they can do their service. So they can do their work. Look, I have one responsibility. I know I'm a pastor and I have a lot of things that factor into that job title. But I have one responsibility. And that is to pray and to study God's word and to listen the best way that I can so that I can then equip you to do your work. That's my job as a pastor. If I was an apostle, it'd be the same. If I was a prophet, it'd be the same. An evangelist, it'd be the same. A teacher, it'd be the same. My job is to pray, to study God's word, and then equip you to do your job. It, look, read the passage. Read the passage. It says, he gave himself the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach the unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. That's what it says. Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say, so Christ gave himself the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. It doesn't say that. It says to equip the saints. And then when the saints do their work, all the other wonderful stuff flows from there. I can do my job all day long. But if you don't do yours, it's like a gear that has a rock in it. This gear's running, but this gear can't because there's a cog in the wheel. It's stopping it. And so the apparatus isn't functioning the way it's designed to because one gear can't turn. If you don't do your job and what God's called you to do, then our church will not experience the fullness of what God has. And to be honest, the body of Christ being built up, reaching unity in the faith, and in the knowledge of the Son of God, becoming mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, that sounds really appealing to me. Getting the fullness. I mean, if it didn't say anything else, the fullness of the measure of Christ. There is nothing that sounds sweeter, but we can't do it alone. It doesn't matter if I do my job, 
if y'all don't do y'all's. It doesn't matter if y'all do y'all's job if I don't do mine. In fact, if I don't do my job, you can't do your job. And we're just back and forth, back and forth, and just stuck. It's like the iPod stuck on replay. Replay, never mind. <laughs> All right. So here, here, we, here it is. Here, here's the fullness and bringing it around to intimate fellowship or intentional fellowship. Intentional fellowship, we like to talk about the fruit. We like to show the pictures of small groups in the missional community. That is a byproduct of the church operating the way that God designed it to. That is something you can't stop. When the church is functioning on all cylinders, listen, I've heard stories of how the church used to be, you know, maybe 30 years ago, 40 years ago, I don't remember. But I've heard stories of people in the congregation just randomly throwing together Bible study groups in one another's house and doing studies and going out to eat and just spending time together because it's unstoppable. Once the water starts flowing, it's hard to stop it. But you can't just keep hoping that it flows and not fix the pump. You have to prime the pump to get the water flowing. Once you prime the pump, the water will flow until you make it stop. And sometimes you can't even make it stop once it gets primed and starts flowing. Showing a picture of a small group isn't going to do that. Fixing the broken system is what's going to do that. And that's what we need to do is we need to fix the system. The leadership does its job. Actually praying not just saying that we're praying, actually studying, not just throwing up slides from someone else's sermon series, actually seeking after God, not just throwing something together and hope that it passes for a sermon, actually hearing from God, not just saying some generalized statement and hope that it might apply to somebody. The leadership has to do its job, has to be on its face before God so that you can be equipped, so that you can actually step into your purpose and your calling from God on your life. And here's the two options. The broken system, we know what it's like. Just listen to these words and tell me if this sounds familiar. Being infants or spiritually immature, tossed back and forth by every doctrine that comes along, by every false teaching, having people in leadership being deceitful, and scheming to come up with things that benefit themselves. Does that sound familiar at all? Listen, I, I had to stop following a lot of Christian news platforms because I got so sick and tired of seeing this le uh, spiritual leader commit suicide, this spiritual leader get caught in an extramarital affair, this spiritual leader having some kind of breakdown and collapse, or this one coming out of the, uh, you know, saying that they don't believe anything that they've been teaching. I had to stop following because it was like every single day some preacher or pastor or teacher keeps, co keeps coming out and saying, hey, I'm not really living according to the life that I've said I've been living for the last 20, 30 years. And it was just constant. And it still is. I have no doubt there's still people and all these different things coming out about people living lives that don't align with the faith that they say that they teach and preach. And I'm not talking about people making mistakes because people make mistakes. I'm talking about the people that stand behind the pulpit week after week and lie and say that they are something that they're not or that they live a way that they don't. And they deceive the congregations. 
and they scheme and they try to to rob people from their houses and get people to mention them in their wills and and build up their bank account. And the church sits spiritually immature. That's that's what I see in the American church largely, and I'm not condemning anyone. I'm just saying it, it is what it is because the system's broken. The other side of it is the exact opposite. Instead of having leaders that deceitful, we speak the truth in love. Instead of being spiritual infants, we grow to become in every respect, in every respect, the mature body of Christ. The whole body isn't tossed back and forth with every doctrine and teaching that comes along. No, it's firmly fitted and joined together. And guess what? It's not one man or one woman building it up. It's being built up because every joint, every ligament, every piece is contributing to the overall growth and health of the body. It says that it builds itself up as each part does its work. We're a body. We're not a show. We're not an entertainment structure. We're a body of believers, diverse yet unified, assembling together to believe and surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So the first sign of a healthy church is devotion to the Word of God. The second sign of a healthy church is intentional fellowship. And what I mean is intentional is getting the system straight and getting the cogs out of the wheel so that we can flow correctly. Fellowship is the fruit and the product. Intentional is the root. Fellowship is the fruit. You can't start with the fruit and hope it fixes the root. Look, go to a dying apple tree and tape apples onto it all day long. It ain't going to fix nothing. Think about Opie. I don't know. I, w- I love Andy. The Andy Griffith Show. I love that show. But there's an episode, and Aunt B enters a rose contest. And she has this rose, and she's like crossbred. And she's got this rose, and it's just, I don't know, it's supposed to be pink. It was black and white, so I took their word for it. But anyway, it's like this multicolored rose. Is this this multicolored rose, and she's only got the one. It's absolutely stunning. And Opie is passing football in the backyard, and it breaks the rose. And so what does he do? Instead of telling Aunt B that the rose is broke, he tapes it. He tapes it with clear this clear scotch tape so that you can't see that it's broken. So he tapes the rose, and guess what? The rose dies because taping it didn't do a thing. It no longer was connected to the supply. The flower or the blossom or the fruit was no longer connected to the root. Tape it, don't matter. It ain't going to change the issue. We've got to remove the tape and have some quote-unquote open-heart surgery in our churches. Amen? Well, are you all ready to fix some problems? And I'm not saying that our church has problems. I'm saying that the church has problems. And if we want to be the image of a healthy church and to walk in divine health, this is what we strive for. Not just, hey, we've got it today, tomorrow we can forget about it. No, every day we self-examine. Open up, search us and try us and test us and prove us, God, and see if there's any wicked way in us. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you so much for the opportunity to come into your house and to hear your word. Lord, I pray that every single person in this house would realize that they have a calling from you, 
that they have a divine gift, a treasure inside of them that is necessary for the fruition and for the prospering of the body of Christ. Do not let your people continue to rob from the church, but encourage and empower us to step out in our calling, which is without repentance, so that we, not just individually me, but we as individuals can come together corporately and function as a beautiful expression of the diverse body that your church is meant to be and that fellowship will be produced out of that. God, there's something special about going to war together. There's something special that unites us when we pursue the mission together in a way that nothing else can. So God, let us become bound together in unity. Let us focus on the intentional part. And Lord, by your spirit, I pray that you produce the fellowship. In Jesus' name, amen.